You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. ...of God's money in a way that aligns with God's values. And today we are going to talk about generosity. And here's what I want to help us see together today from our text. That joy-filled generosity is a powerful way to embody the joyful sacrifice of Jesus. We're doing this series on money because it is such a significant part of our lives. Money intersects with so many areas of our lives every single day, and we believe that it is a discipleship issue. If we want to be mature followers of Jesus, then we need to know what God has to say about money. And in our passage today, it is the longest or one of the longest and most clear arguments that we find in the scriptures for God's call toward generosity with our, gener- with our resources. And so if you turn in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15, if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I'll read and you can follow along. We'll begin in verse 1 and go through verse 15. And God's word says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they, ha- for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Excuse me. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I, gave, I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Go and grab a seat and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people, that in it we understand your vision for life and faith, what you're doing in the world, and how you are bringing reconciliation through Jesus. We thank you that Jesus came in poverty, that we might be rich. So now as we open your word, would you help us by the power of your spirit, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
In preparation for this series, I read a book called Plastic Donuts with the subtitle, Giving That Delights the Heart of the Father. It's a short little read. It's worth your time if you want a book on generosity. The author, Jeff Anderson, opens with a story about his 18-month-old daughter named Autumn. And in this story he tells, he's working on his computer and his daughter carries over to him a plastic donut from her toy kitchen. And he hand, or she hands the donut to him and he looks at the donut and then he looks at her and she's there looking at him just waiting for a response. And so eventually he pretended to eat the donut like we do with children. And he you know, gave all these yums and mm, thank you, so good. And she, this the most beautiful thing happened as she looked up at him. Her brown eyes grew. She got a smile on her face and she squealed with excitement at her father's delight. And then, of course, she ran to the kitchen and got another plastic item and brought it back. And he did the same and on and on the cycle went. Until eventually, Jeff gathered all the plastic items and returned them to the kitchen. He, in his book, makes the comparison to our own generosity here, that it not only brings joy to our hearts, as it did for 18-month-old Autumn, but it also delights the heart of our Father. Even though he doesn't need our gifts any more than Jeff needed a plastic donut, the act of generosity is something powerful and spiritual in us. Our hearts are being united with the Father. As we'll see in our passage, we live out this act in our own generosity to the world. And the primary message of our sermon, again, is that joy-filled generosity is a powerful way to embody the joyful sacrifice of Jesus. Based on my study of Scripture, I believe that generosity, whether in our financial offerings or in meeting the practical needs of others, is a source of joy that God has given us. Our sacrificial gifts are a way for us to embody and experience the joyful sacrifice of Jesus. And so we'll talk about three aspects of generosity in our passage. They'll form the outline for our sermon. We'll talk about the readiness to give, the act of giving, and finally, the motivation to give. So first, the readiness to give. The Corinthians here had a readiness to give. And it was in response to the needs of others. In particular, they wanted to contribute to a collection that Paul is trying to gather and get to the poor Christians that are living in Jerusalem. This same collection is referenced in the book of Acts. It's also referenced in others of Paul's writings. And a year before or or so, they had desired to give, Paul says in verse 10. And then in verse 11, he says, Now finish doing it all as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. A substantial amount of time had passed since they had first indicated their desire to give, and so Paul is now writing to bring that gift to completion. And this might be obvious, but I think worth saying, before we are able to follow through on the joyful act of giving, we need to have a desire and a readiness to be generous people. Some of us in the room are not ready to follow through because we have not made it up in our mind to be generous. In order to motivate and clarify his desire for the Corinthians, Paul first begins with this example of the Macedonians. That's what he's talking about in verses 1 through 5. This would have included churches like Thessalonica, the Bereans, the Philippians. The vision that God has for his people is that we would be generous. Out of the abundant generosity that God has given us in Jesus, it produces a readiness and a desire in us to be generous toward others. 
So let's make some observations about what Paul is saying about the Macedonians and their example. The first is that they gave with joy. Even though the Macedonians were under great affliction, they were in poverty, it says in verse 2, they gave generously and they gave with joy. In comparison to the Corinthians, the, the Macedonians had very little. The Corinthians had far more opportunity to be generous. And this is a good reminder for us that our circumstances are not prohibitive to us being joyful in our generosity. The second thing we see is that they gave according to their means. In verse 3, we see that they actually gave even beyond their means. And an important principle is here that generosity in the Bible, we give according to what we have been given. And Jesus even reinforces this when his own teaching, when he observed the poor widow who put in her two very small copper coins in Mark 12, verses 41 through 44. Jesus says to his disciples, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. All these wealthy people would come into the temple and they would make a big deal of their large gifts. But Jesus, he pulls his disciples close and he says, look, look at this poor widow. She is the one who is worth celebrating because she has given sacrificially. Paul is pointing out a similar principle here in the Macedonians. They were giving even beyond their means. The third thing we see is that they were eager to give. In verse 4, Paul writes that the Macedonians were begging for an opportunity to contribute. In fact, they were asking for a favor to be able to participate. They did not see their generosity as a hindrance to their joy. For them, it was a privilege and an opportunity. In many ways, the Corinthians mirrored this eagerness, eagerness, at least initially. They had a readiness to give, and so Paul is now appealing to follow through on that readiness. The fourth thing we see about the Macedonians is that they gave themselves even before their money. In verse 5, Paul celebrates that even before their monetary gift, they gave themselves to the Lord, and they gave themselves in fellowship to Paul. Their generosity flowed out of their relationship with a generous God and the gift of Paul's ministry to them. The Macedonians here are given as this beautiful example of joyful generosity. They begged for the opportunity to contribute because it was good for them. It brought them joy. Paul also believed that it was good for the Corinthians to contribute. That's what he says in verse 10 when he says, this benefits you. Paul's assessment is that their follow-through would actually be to their benefit. And so let me ask you this question. Do you see God's call for generosity as a benefit or a burden? One of the reasons we can often see it as a burden is because we get caught up in all the rules and all the posturing that comes along with money and giving. We forget God's intent for it. Like so many of the habits that God has given us, They are meant to be a delight and a benefit, not a burden and a wearisome task. Generosity is a habit like so many others. However, when we see it as a benefit, when we see it as a benefit and not a burden, it becomes contagious. When we experience the radical generosity of God, and as a result, we will then embody the joy-filled sacrifice of Jesus in our own joyful generosity. Walker Hayes is a country music artist. He's known for his chart-topping song, Fancy Like. Maybe you've heard it. He sings about a fancy night out with his wife. 
including Applebee's Bourbon Street Steak and an Oreo Shake. He's also the father of six, and one of his more powerful songs is actually a song named Craig. I saw an interview that he did about the song, and it's a powerful story. Hayes sings about going to church and meeting a man named Craig, and in the interview he says that at the time he hated church. He hated church people. He didn't want to be around them. He wanted nothing to do with them. However, his wife was a Christian, and he had thought she had given up bringing him to church, but she brought him to a new church. He says it was a small church out in the country, and he drove up, and he's like, I don't want to be here. But he walked in, and he met a man named Craig. He says that Craig understood him. He, he understood his standoffish attitude and even was willing to just engage with Walker in his own terms. Over the next several years, Craig and his wife befriended Walker and his wife, Lainey. And at this point in his music career, he didn't have any big hits. He was working a second job just to pay for his family's basic needs. And then the situation got even worse. Their minivan broke down, and they couldn't afford a new vehicle. However, they had a sixth child on the way, and when that child was born, their current car did not have enough seat belts to safely transport all of their children. He didn't know what to do. He was in a state of desperation. He was at his son's Little League game, and Craig drove up to the field in his own family's town and country van, and he got out with keys in his hand and the title, and he walked over to Walker, and he said, all you got to do is sign, and the van is yours. Walker refused the gift at first. He didn't want a handout from anyone, but Craig insisted. And according to the interview that I saw, excuse me, the next thing that Craig said changed Walker's life forever. Craig simply said, please take it. Someone did this for me once. Now let me do this for you. Walker took the keys and he drove home with his kids all in seatbelts He not only had a van that now worked, but there was this broken place in his heart that was beginning to be chipped away. He was led to see that God made an even greater sacrifice for us in Jesus. And now Walker follows the Lord and wants to help others also hear this message. I'm not sure what or who it was or what they this person did for Craig, but we all have someone who made an ultimate sacrifice for us. And every act of generosity is like us saying the very same thing. God did this for me once, but infinitely more in Jesus. Let me do this for you. The Corinthians had a readiness to give, but they lacked follow-through. And so now let's talk about the act of giving. Paul is writing these verses to say to the Corinthians, follow through on what you intended to do. Look with me at verse 11. He says, So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. This really is a simple argument from Paul. He is holding out their readiness and intent to give, and he's calling them to bring their actions into alignment with what they intended to do. Readiness to give and following through, though, are not the same. And for some of us, this is our struggle the step of actually releasing the resources. And if that is you, you're not alone. The Corinthians struggled to follow through as well. And let me encourage you, like Paul does here for the Corinthians, to follow through, even today, take a step toward joyful generosity. It's not uncommon, and I hear this often, to think that if you are young or you don't have a lot of money, that you don't feel like you can be generous. You'll tell yourself, someday, 
Someday I'll be the generous person. When I have a new job, then I will be generous. Which then becomes, when I pay off my loans, then I will be generous. Which then becomes, when I make a sufficient down payment on my home, then I will be generous. There's always the next thing. And so let me just encourage you, no matter your financial situation, whether you have debt or whether you feel that your income is too meager, follow through on your readiness to be generous. Any amount. It doesn't have to be a lot even. And just to be very clear that we're just not out to get your money, I'm not even telling you that you have to give to River City Church. Be generous in whatever way the Lord is calling you to. I do think it is wise and prudent that you should give to your local church if you call it home. But if you're not giving at all, then just choose somewhere. Choose any amount, even a small amount, and start. Sponsor a child with World Vision for $30 a month. Become a freedom partner with International Justice Mission for $25 a month. Sign up for the next meal train that we send out as a church. Sacrifice something you want so that you can be generous and provide something someone else needs. If it's hard for you to follow through, maybe set up an automatic recurring gift at the beginning of each month. Most organizations have a way to do that. For example, you can set it up through our church center app, even here at River City. It is good for you to be generous. And that requires you to follow through. So take a step. There are several fears that might keep us from actually following through. And I want to mention two that we share in common with the Corinthians. The first is to be paralyzed by wanting to make the perfect gift. The Corinthians seem to have this concern, which is why Paul tells them in verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And here we come back to this principle of proportional giving. We give out of what we have, not out of what we don't have. One of the reasons we get paralyzed by making the, or one of the reasons we get paralyzed sometimes is we want to make the perfect gift because we get hung up on this idea of a 10% giving standard. We call this a tithe sometimes. And tithe is based on an Old Testament concept, which literally means one-tenth in Hebrew. And let me just say this about the tithe. 10% may be a helpful standard for us that we could aspire toward, but it's not a rule that should govern us. It is not a biblical requirement today like it was in the Old Testament law. So don't get paralyzed by this idea of this perfect 10% tithe. Just get started. Some of you are not giving because you know that your financial situation keeps you from giving all that you would like to be able to give. And so in shame, you become tempted to not do anything at all. The Corinthians seemed to be paralyzed by a similar fear. They had not given their gift yet, because at least in part, they may have been ashamed that it was not as much as they wanted it to be. And so Paul is trying to remind them, if you are ready to give, then your gift will be acceptable based on what you are able to give. As I said, the 10% rule may be a helpful standard, but it's not an absolute standard. For some, it paralyzes them from simply taking a step. For others, it creates this artificial finish line when they could be even more generous. And like so many of our religious rules then, it creates pride in some, and it creates shame-filled paralysis in others. C.S. Lewis once wrote down a principle for generosity that I think is helpful. He said, I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. They ought to be things we want to do, or there ought to be things we want to do, but cannot do because our giving expenditures exclude them. 
That seems to be what the Macedonians had done in their example. As Paul says in verse 3, they gave beyond their means. It hurt a little bit, but they did it with joy. They begged for the privilege to contribute because when we give joyfully and sacrificially, we embody the joy-filled sacrifice of Jesus. And that type of generosity is a habit that is good for the soul. So don't get paralyzed by the perfect gift. Just start and trust that God will bring joy through your sacrifice. The second fear that we share in common with the Corinthians is a fear for our own provision. In the back of our minds, we are asking ourselves, if I give this money away, will I have what I need? And because we're in America, far more often, we're we're not just asking what we need because we often have what we need. We're asking, will I be able to buy what I want? Based on Paul's final comments here to the Corinthians, I think the fear of provision was in their minds as well. In verses 13 through 15, Paul explains that he does not want their contribution to the collection to, to prohibit their own needs from being met. The Corinthians' present abundance will supply the needs of the Jerusalem church, he says in verse 14. And when the Corinthians are in need, then others will do the same for them. So then he ends by quoting from Deuteronomy 15, which might seem out of place at first without understanding it, but it's a reference to God's instructions about manna in the wilderness. If you know the rules of manna in the wilderness, if someone was young and energetic and they gathered much, at the end of the day, they had nothing left over. If someone was weak or less able to gather, they had no lack. They were always provided for. In the same way, the generosity of the Corinthians will not prohibit them from having their needs met. We can trust in God's provision today as well. Throughout this series, we've talked about some of the idols behind the idol of money. For some, you struggle to give because your idol of status or entertainment causes you to spend all your money on yourself. For others, you struggle to give because your idol of security or control causes you to save all the money that you can. In a similar way to the Corinthians here who feared for their own provision, Paul is saying, you can be generous. God will provide for your needs. It is clear that God wants us to be generous, but there are barriers and there are fears to following through on our readiness to give. And so we need a motivation strong enough to overcome those fears. And so let's talk about the third aspect of generosity, the motivation to give. Right here in the middle of our text, in verses 6 through 9, Paul focuses on the motivations for generosity. The first appeal that Paul makes is in their act of generosity, that their act of generosity would be consistent with their faith. In verse 7, he says that because they excel in so many of these other areas of their apprenticeship to Jesus, in faith, speech, knowledge, and all earnestness, they should finish their collection, so that they excel in their generosity as well. In verse 8, he adds that generosity is the evidence that their love is in fact genuine. And then Paul moves into the most potent motivation, the example of Jesus in verse 9. And that really is the centerpiece of our text this morning. He writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Jesus was rich in his heavenly kingdom. He had all that he could need. It was the exact opposite of the situation that the Macedonians were in with their poverty and their affliction. Jesus lived in abundance and provision. He had no affliction but perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit, and he stepped out of heaven to experience poverty, not just monetarily, but spiritually and relationally. 
The central doctrine of the Christian faith is that the perfect sacrifice was made by God through Jesus, and that we, who are spiritually poor, are made rich through the sacrifice of Christ. The tithe in the Old Testament was something that God's people gave as the first fruits of their harvest, the first fruits of their labor. It was one of the ways that they could live in, within the covenant law that God had set for them. And the tithe is no longer binding on us as a religious rule because the first fruit requirement has been fulfilled in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says that Jesus was raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus fulfilled the required sacrifice, and nothing we give, not in time, money, or obedience, could possibly satisfy the obligation that we are under. Jesus fulfilled it all. His death and his resurrection are sufficient, which means our generosity is not something that we have to do. It is something we get to do. It is the natural response of God's generosity toward us. We get the privilege and the honor of contributing to the work of God in the world. Like the Macedonians, when Jesus has fulfilled all of the obligations on our behalf, we can eagerly insist in contributing to the needs of God's people and to the work of God's kingdom. We can say something a little bit like Craig said to Walker, God did this for me, but infinitely more in Jesus. Now let me do this for you. Paul here is appealing to the sacrifice of Jesus, and the subtle implication of this sacrifice further explodes the limits that we so often put on our generosity. Because if Jesus is the example, he didn't just give up 10% of his life for us. He didn't just experience a fractional reduction in his resources. He gave up everything. He went from complete and perfect abundance to poverty and sacrifice, a sacrifice that would eventually cost him his life. We may not be under the obligation of the tithing rule anymore, but the example that we follow in Jesus is far more radical. Jesus gave up everything, which is why we talked about stewardship last week under the principle that God owns everything. When we give ourselves to Jesus, he is our master and our Lord. All that we have is his. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said that no one can serve two masters, Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. When money is our master, we will use it however we want, to serve whatever we desire, often to serve the idols behind the idol of money, power, pleasure, security, or status. In the end, money becomes a cruel master, one that will never satisfy us one that will steal our lives from us, and one day we will realize that money has been a terrible God to worship. Or we can follow Jesus, and he can be our master. Jacques Ellul, in his book Power and Money, argues that one of the best ways we can undermine the idol of money is to do the one thing that humans never intended money to do, to give it away. There is no more blasphemous thing to the God of money than to give that money away. To say in our hearts, I don't need this money to satisfy me because Jesus has already given me all that I will ever need in him. In this way, generosity is not a rule to follow, but an act of worship. When we use our money to serve our idols, it is a ritual to the God of money. In the same way that generosity is an act of worship to our God. And that is why Paul makes this appeal to the example of Jesus in verse 9 because he was the ultimate sacrifice, 
who gave all that he had so that others could have all that they need. And Jesus is not only an example here, but he is also our motivation and our means by which we become free to do the same. Through the blood of Jesus, he died to fulfill every obligation of the law and to satisfy every consequence of our rebellion against God. And in our worship of him, he frees us from the idol of money so that we can be joyful in our generosity. Paul argues in our passage that generosity is actually for our good, to our benefit, that it will bring joy, even in the midst of poverty and affliction. And that is because our, jo- or our Savior joyfully sacrificed himself so that we might have life. And so let me give you this final encouragement. If you feel God's Spirit prompting you to be generous, follow through on that readiness to give. Don't live in shame that you have not given in all the perfect ways in the past. Just take a step. And I promise you, even if your generosity hurts you just a little, it will ultimately bring you joy. Because joy-filled generosity is a powerful way for us to embody the joyful sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.